section seven of a history of our own times volume three by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter thirty three the hundredth anniversary of Placy. the news of the outbreak at mirut and the proclamation in delhi broke upon calcutta with the shock of a thunderclap yet it was not wholly a shock of surprise for some time there had been vague anticipations of some impending danger there was alarm in the air there had long been a prophecy known to india that the hundredth anniversary of the battle of Plassey would see the end of english rule in hindustan and now the hundredth anniversary was near there is a fine passage in sir henry taylor's philip van artevelde in which van rick says to the hero of the drama if you mark my lord mostly a rumour of such things precedes the certain tidings and philip musingly answers it is strange yet true that doubtful knowledge travels with a speed miraculous which certain cannot match i know not why when this or that has chanced the smoke outruns the flash but so it is the smoke had apparently outrun the flash in many parts of india during this eventful season calcutta heard the news of what had happened with wild alarm and horror but hardly with much surprise for one or two days calcutta was a prey to mere panic the alarm was greatly increased by the fact that the dethroned king of Oued was established near to the city at garden reach a few miles down the huli the dispossessed king was living there he lived for many years after with his host of dependents and hangers-on round him a picturesque writer lately described the grotesque structures in which the old man with his mania for building quarters not only his people but his menagerie tower after tower rises high above the lower buildings on the top of each of which comfortably quartered in a spacious den abides a huge bengal tiger whose stripes glisten in the sun in the sight of the passer-by on the river he owns vast flocks of trained pigeons which fly or alight at the word of command wild but not unmusical shouts of coolies stationed on the housetops who appear to direct their motions by the waving of long bamboos the inhabitants of calcutta when the news of the mutiny came were convinced that the king of oed harboured close to their city companions more dangerous than pigeons or even than bengal tigers they were sure that the place was the headquarters of rebellion and were expecting the moment when from the residence at garden reach an organized army of murderers was to be sent forth to capture and destroy the ill-fated city and to make its streets run with the blood of its massacred inhabitants lord canning took the prudent course of having the king with his prime minister removed to the governor-general's own residence within the precincts of fort william there is no recklessness no cruelty like the cruelty and recklessness of panic perhaps there is hardly any panic so demoralizing in its effects as that which seizes the unwarlike members of a ruling race set down in the midst of overwhelming numbers of the subject populations at a moment when the cry goes abroad that the subjected are rising in rebellion fortunately there was at the head of affairs in india a man with a cool head a quiet firm will and a courage that never faltered 
if ever the crisis found the man lord canning was the man called for by that crisis in india he had all the divining genius of the true statesman the man who can rise to the height of some unexpected and new emergency and he had the cool courage of a practised conqueror the greatest trial to which a ruler can be subjected is to be called upon at a moment's notice to deal with events and conditions for which there is no precedent the second-class statesman the official statesman if we may use such an expression collapses under such a trial the man of genius finds it his opportunity and makes his own of it lord canning thus found his opportunity in the indian mutiny among all the distracting counsels and wild stories poured in upon him from every side he kept his mind clear he never gave way either to anger or to alarm if he ever showed a little impatience it was only where panic would too openly have proclaimed itself by counsels of wholesale cruelty he could not perhaps always conceal from frightened people the fact that he rather despised their terrors throughout the whole of that excited period there were few names even among the chiefs of rebellion on which fiercer denunciation was showered by englishmen than the name of lord canning because he would not listen to the bloodthirsty clamours of mere frenzy he was nicknamed clemency canning as if clemency were an attribute of which a man ought to be ashamed indeed for some time people wrote and spoke not merely in india but in england as if clemency were a thing to be reprobated like treason or crime every allowance must be made for the unparalleled excitement of such a time and in especial for the manner in which the elementary passions of manhood were inflamed by the stories happily not true of the wholesale dishonour and barbarous mutilation of women but when the fullest allowance has been made for this it must be said by any one looking back on that painful time that some of the public instructors of england betrayed a fury and ferocity which no conditions can excuse on the part of civilised and christian men who have time to reflect before they write or speak the advices which some english journals showered upon the government the army and all concerned in repressing the mutiny might more fittingly have come from some of the heroes of the spanish fury nay the spanish fury itself was in express words held up to the english army as an example for them to imitate an english paper of high and well-earned authority distinctly declared that such mercy as alva showed the netherlands was the mercy that english soldiers must show to the rebellious regions of india there was for a while but little talk of repression every one in england well knew that the rebellion would be repressed it has to be remembered to the credit of england's national courage and resolve that not at the worst moment of the crisis did it seem to have occurred to any englishman that there was the slightest possibility of the rebellion being allowed to succeed it is painful to have to remember that the talk was not of repression but of revenge public speakers and writers were shrieking out for the vengeance which must be inflicted on india when the rebellion had been put down for a while it seemed a question of patriotism which would propose the most savage and sanguinary measures of revenge 
we shall see farther on that one distinguished english officer was clamorous to have powers given to him to impale to burn alive and to flay mutineers who had taken part in the murder of english women mr disraeli to do him justice raised his voice in remonstrance against the wild passions of the hour even when these passions were strongest and most general he declared that if such a temper were encouraged we ought to take down from our altars the images of christ and raise the statue of moloch there and he protested against making nana sahib of whom we shall hear more the model for the conduct of a british officer mr disraeli did indeed at a later period show an inclination to back out of this courageous and honourable expression of opinion but it stands at all events to the credit of his first impulse that he could venture at such a time to talk of morality mercy and christianity if people were so carried away in england where the danger was far remote we can easily imagine what were the fears and passions roused in india where the terror was or might be at the door of every one lord canning was gravely embarrassed by the wild urgencies and counsels of distracted englishmen who were furious with him because he even thought of distinguishing friend from foe where native races were concerned he bore himself with perfect calmness listened to everything that any one had to say where time gave him any chance of doing so read as far as possible all the myriad communications poured in upon him regarded no suggestion as unworthy of consideration but made his own resolves and his own judgment the final arbiter he was greatly assisted and encouraged in his counsels by his brave and noble wife who proved herself in every way worthy to be the helpmate of such a man at such a crisis he did not for a moment underestimate the danger but neither did he exaggerate its importance he never allowed it to master him he looked upon it with the quiet resolute eye of one who is determined to be the conqueror in the struggle lord canning saw that the one important thing was to strike at delhi which had proclaimed itself the headquarters of the rebellion he knew that english troops were on their way to china for the purpose of wreaking the wrongs of english subjects there and he took on his own responsibility the bold step of intercepting them and calling them to the work of helping to put down the mutiny in india the dispute with china he thought could well afford to wait but with the mutiny it must be now or never india could not wait for reinforcements brought all the way from england in scott's betrothed the soldier of the night who owns the frontier castle encourages him when the welsh are about to attack by the assurance that the forces of the constable of chester will soon come to his aid and that with these reinforcements they will send the welsh dragon flag flying from the field the knight sadly answers that it must fly from the field before the reinforcements arrive or it will fly over all our dead bodies thus felt lord canning when he thought of the strong arms that england could send to his assistance he knew well enough as well as the wildest alarmist could know that the rebel flag must be forced to fly from some field before that help came or it would fly over the dead bodies of those who then represented english authority in india he had therefore no hesitation in stopping the troops that were on their way to china and pressing them into the service of india at such a need fortune too was favourable to him in more ways than one 
the persian war was of short duration sir james utram was soon victorious and the persians sued for peace the treaty of peace was signed at paris in march eighteen fifty seven and was arranged so quickly that utram inflicted a crushing defeat on the persians after the treaty was signed but before the news of its signature had time to reach the seat of war utram therefore and his gallant companions colonel jacob and colonel havelock were able to lend their invaluable services to the governor-general of india most important for lord canning's purposes was the manner in which the affairs of the punjab were managed at this crisis the punjab was under the administration of one of the ablest public servants india had ever had sir john afterwards lord lawrence john lawrence had from his youth been in the civil service of the east india company and when lord dalhousie annexed the punjab he made lawrence and his soldier brother the gallant sir henry lawrence two out of a board of three for the administration of the affairs of the newly acquired province afterwards sir john lawrence was named the chief commissioner of the punjab and by the promptitude and energy of himself and his subordinates the province was completely saved for english rule at the outbreak of the mutiny fortunately the electric telegraph extended from calcutta to lahore the chief city of the punjab on may eleventh the news of the outbreak at mirut was brought to the authorities at lahore as it happened sir john lawrence was then away at rawalpindi in the upper punjab but mr robert montgomery the judicial commissioner at lahore was invested with plenary power and he showed that he could use it to advantage Myanmar is a large military cantonment five or six miles from lahore and there were then some four thousand native troops there with only about thirteen hundred europeans of the queen's and the company's service there was no time to be lost if the spirit of mutiny were to spread the condition of things in the punjab would be desperate but what did the condition of things in the punjab involve the possible loss of a province something far greater than that it meant the possibility of a momentary collapse of all british authority in india for if any one will take the trouble to cast a glance at the map of india he will see that the punjab is so placed as to become a basis of operations for the precise military movements which every experienced eye then saw to be necessary for the saving of our indian empire the candle would have been burning at both ends so far as regards the northwest provinces if the punjab had gone with delhi and lucknow while the punjab held firm it was like a barrier raised at one side of the rebellious movement not merely preventing it from going any farther in that direction but keeping it pent up until the moment came when the blow from the other direction could fall upon it the first thing to be done to strike effectively at the rebellion was to make an attack on delhi and the possession of the punjab was of inestimable advantage to the authorities for that purpose it will be seen then that the moment was critical for those to whose hands the administration of the great new provinces had been entrusted there was no actual reason to assume that the sepoys in Myanmar meant to join the rebellion there would be a certain danger of converting them into rebels if any rash movement were to be made for the purpose of guarding against treachery on their part either way was a serious responsibility a momentous risk the authorities soon made up their minds 
any risk would be better than that of leaving it in the power of the native troops to join the rebellion a ball and supper were to be given at lahore that night to avoid creating any alarm it was arranged that the entertainments should take place during the dancing and feasting mr montgomery held a council of the leading officials of lahore civil and military and it was resolved at once to disarm the native troops a parade was ordered for daybreak at Mianmir, and on the parade ground an order was given for a military movement which brought the heads of four columns of the native troops in front of twelve guns charged with grape the artillerymen with their port-fires lighted and the soldiers of one of the queen's regiments standing behind with loaded muskets a command was given to the sepoys to pile arms they had immediate death before them if they disobeyed they stood literally at the cannon's mouth they piled their arms which were borne away at once in carts by the european soldiers and all chances of a rebellious movement were over in that province and the punjab was saved something of the same kind was done at multan in the lower punjab later on and the province thus assured to english civil and military authority became a basis for some of the most important operations by which the mutiny was crushed and the sceptre of india restored to the queen within little more than a fortnight from the occupation of delhi by the rebels the british forces under general anson the commander-in-chief were advancing on that city the commander did not live to conduct any of the operations he died of cholera almost at the beginning of the march he had lived long enough to come in for much sharp censure the temper of the time both in england and in india expected men to work by witchcraft rather than wit and anson was furiously denounced by some of the principal english journals because he did not recapture delhi without having even to march an army to the neighbourhood of the city he was described as a holiday soldier who had never seen service either in peace or war his appointment was denounced as a shameless job and a tribute altogether to the claims of family and personal acquaintance we cannot venture now to criticise the mode of general anson's appointment and he had not time to show whether he was any better than a holiday soldier but it would appear that lord canning had no poor opinion of his capacity and was particularly impressed by his coolness and command of temper he died however at the very outset of his march and we only refer now to the severe attacks which were made upon him to illustrate the temper of the nation and the manner in which it delighted to hear itself addressed we are always rebuking other nations for their impatience and fretfulness under difficulties it is a lesson of no slight importance for us to be reminded that when the hour of strain and pressure comes we are found to be in most ways very like our neighbours the siege of delhi proved long and difficult another general died another had to give up his command before the city was recaptured it was justly considered by lord canning and by all the authorities as of the utmost importance that delhi should be taken before the arrival of great reinforcements from home meanwhile the rebellion was breaking out at new points almost everywhere in these northern and northwestern regions on may thirtieth the mutiny declared itself at lucknow sir henry lawrence was governor of oed 
he endeavoured to drive the rebels from the place but the numbers of the mutineers were overwhelming he had under his command too a force partly made up of native troops and some of these deserted him in the battle he had to retreat and to fortify the residency at lucknow and remove all the european men women and children thither and patiently stand a siege lawrence himself had not long to endure the siege on july second he had been up with the dawn and after a great amount of work he lay on a sofa not as it has been said to rest but to transact business in a recumbent position his nephew and another officer were with him suddenly a great crash was heard and the room was filled with smoke and dust one of his companions was flung to the ground a shell had burst when there was silence the officer who had been flung down called out sir henry are you hurt at first there was no answer then a weak voice was heard to reply in just the words that browning has put into the mouth of the gallant french lad similarly questioned by the great napoleon i am killed was the answer that came faintly but firmly from sir henry lawrence's lips the shell had wounded him in the thigh so fearfully as to leave surgery no chance of doing anything for his relief on the morning of july fourth he died calmly and in perfect submission to the will of providence he had made all possible arrangements for his successor and for the work to be done he desired that on his tomb should be engraven merely the words here lies henry lawrence who tried to do his duty the epitaph was a simple truthful summing up of a simple truthful career the man however was greater than the career lawrence had not opportunity to show in actual result the greatness of spirit that was in him the immense influence he exercised over all who came within his reach bears testimony to his strength and nobleness of character better than any of the mere successes which his biographer can record he was full of sympathy his soul was alive to the noblest and purest aspirations it is the due admixture of romance and reality he was himself accustomed to say that best carries a man through life no professional teacher or philosopher ever spoke a truer sentence as one of his many admirers says of him what he said and wrote he did or rather he was let the bitterest enemy of england write the history of her rule in india and set down as against her every wrong that was done in her name from those which burke denounced to those which the madras commission exposed he will have to say that men many men like henry lawrence lived and died devoted to the cause of that rule and the world will take account of the admission End of section seven